Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? It is about 7.45 p.m. on Friday, November the 6th, 2020. And that means it's time for this, the 93rd trip down the homeward path. My name is Adam, and I've got a few questions for you. I guess the first one on my mind is, are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? I mean, I would hope so if you're here but, you know, stranger things have happened. But, as a fan of Magic the Gathering, are, do you have a, something else going on in your life that is more important to you, that takes priority, that pulls you away from getting to play as much Magic as you would want to? A job, a career, a partner, children, any combination of any of those. Trust me, I know I'm there. Husband, father of three working now we're finally back down to 40 hour 42 hours a week we're back in the reasonable range again but despite all of those outside constraints are you still seeking to find ways to improve at magic together because if you are then i hope you didn't plan on attacking or blocking or activating your abilities for a while because i'm gonna be detaining you for uh we're going to say about half an hour today. Uh, because when we commit ourselves to the three B's of magic improvement, budgeting, brewing, and breaking bad habits, we can overcome the worst of constraints that this game has to throw at us. But first, a word from our sponsors through me. I don't have a pre-recorded thing. I got to remind you that we're brought to you by PureMTGO.com. PureMTGO is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. You could say they are like a tightly packed Senate chamber with all the different voices they have. Sometimes it feels like they're talking over each other, but they're all they're all great in their own way, and they all want to help you get better at magic, or at least enjoy the game more. Along that same token, I don't know why token made its way in there, but you know. Head over to the, the parent network at constructedcriticism.com. We're in the midst of a little bit of a changing of the guard on uh, common knowledge, so keep an eye out for that. Spencer's also got a new co-host for Arena Mythic Cast, so keep an eye out on that. It's Things are happening right now. And then, last but not least, if you like what I'm doing enough to want to sponsor me directly, you can join the handful of others who have headed over to patreon.com slash homerpathmtg and become a patron of this show. This show will, this show and every major piece of content that I put out will always be free, but through my Patreon, you gain access to the Discord, having your deck bumped to the front of the line for Brew of the Week segment, and to eventually, at the third tier, getting an episode written about exactly the thing that you want. I will collaborate directly with you on writing the episode. 
So with all the shilling out of the way, let's dive into our first segment, which ironically and respectfully enough is our budget spotlight. Uh, budget spotlight every week we take a look at an uncommon a rare a mythic and a commander a commander staple or at least a card that's good in commander it feels like it'd be good in commander and this week we're going a little bit off the formula because i could not find a mythic that really fit with the theme of this week's episode that was a good price it was a reasonable price and powerful enough to justify being the you know, the budget spotlight mythic. There were several mythics that were cheap enough and would have been good ones for the commander spotlight. But this week we're getting two rares. I'm sorry, not really. So for the uncommon, we're talking about Reflector Mage, which clocks in at roughly $2 a copy. I don't actually have my notes in front of me because it is so dark I can't read them driving at night anymore. Uh, thanks, Daylight Savings. Thanks to thanks transition back to standard time. When can we stop doing that so that everybody's job gets easier? Get off my soapbox. Our first card is Reflector Mage. And it clocks in about $2 off the top of my head, if I'm not mistaken. And this thing is a beauty. There is basically nothing more you can ask from your tempo-oriented three-drop creature. Uh, it's... A blue, a white, and one for a 2-3. When it enters the battlefield, return target creature and opponent controls to their hand. Your opponent is not allowed to cast spells with the same name as that card until the end phase of your next turn. Think about that for a minute. Now, bear in mind, my first exposure to Reflector Mage was during the first standard format when I came back to playing. And it was the format where I was convinced Voltaic Brawler was going to be really, really good. Because, I mean, it's a 4-3 trample on turn 2. How is that thing not good? It's just, I know it only gives you 2 energy, but it only has to get in twice. That's 8 damage. It's so much damage, and it's trampling, and it's, it's, it's good, right? Reflector Mage had a thing or two to say about that. Uh, notably, when Reflector Mage bounced your... We'll take Brawler. It like it didn't feel horrible until you went to try to cast it the next turn and you couldn't and you drew another one. It invalidates anything that does not provide immediate value as a creature. Doesn't just make it a negative tempo play. There's plenty of negative tempo plays out there that are still being done. But losing outright the ability to replay the card for a whole turn. That's a big deal. It's a huge deal. The fact that it's a three drop, so it's harder to counter with stuff like Drown in the Lock. Harder to interact with, with cards like Blood Chief's Thirst and Fatal Push to get it out of the way, to mitigate the, the blocking ability that it has to also invalidate your small creatures. Like, there's, there's just so much about this card that goes absolutely perfect for something you want to spend three mana on if you're a tempo-oriented deck. It's just, it's like a chef's kiss of three mana tempo creatures. It's just perfect. And heaven forbid you get to bounce something that costs more than three mana. 
Oh my goodness. Like, bounce a terror of the peaks with that. I get a whole nother, I get it, like, I bounce it now, you can't play it next turn, so then I get another turn to dig for an out to it, so that I can get it the next time. Like, that's ridiculous, right? So moving on, the next card, speaking of ridiculous, a rare slot this week is Standard All-Star, and the kind of card that blue-white decks have wanted for basically ever, Dream Trawler. For those of you who don't know, Dream Trawler is comes in at about about the same price as Reflector Mage, about two dollars, somewhere in that ballpark. It is two white, white, blue, blue. Gets you a three-five flying lifelink. Whenever you draw a card, Dream Trawler gets plus one plus zero. Oh. And whenever this whenever this creature attacks, draw a card. Um, I don't know how many games of standard y'all have played that this thing's been involved with, but if you've played more than like two of them, you know how difficult this thing is to race. Like, come on. Even, even in older formats, if you can get the thing on the table, oh, wait, there's more text on it. Like it would be playable if that was all it did right? But no, there's there's more to it than that. Uh, you can discard a card from your hand to give the Dream Trawler Hexproof until end of turn in exchange for tapping it. You can tap it down, give it Hexproof. So, not only is it near impossible to race thanks to the combination of flying and lifelink, it's beating you down while in largely invalidating your largest creature. Uh, it synergizes with every omen of the sea, thirst for meaning, uh, of the ancient way activation. I mean, ew. Activate Maze Mind Tome. That thing's really, 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 really good. Like, really good. It, it closes a game out in a hurry that you've already locked up. It can help stabilize when you're behind. It invalidates opposing removal spells, stranding cards in their hand as long as you've got cards in yours. It's, just, it's again, like Reflector Mage, what more could you want out of your six-mana win condition except maybe being uncounterable for the control mirror, right? Like, that's literally the only knock against the card. That and being a blue spell, even though it's, you know, you know, being being uncounterable would be great. Not being a blue spell in a format with mystical dispute would be a close second. But I digress. Uh, that brings us to our second rare, which is something I never thought I'd have to say. But you know, this is the world we're living in right now. Uh, things are tight right now. The mythics, uh, the the cards I like to highlight in this segment are competitive-focused cards, and very few of those had reasonable price tags. So, the other rare that I wanted to highlight this episode is Yorian Sky Nomad. And, I mean, as a $1 
maybe $2. I can't remember off the top of my head. And I can't read notes in the dark. But as the... As... as Ostensibly the cheapest of the playable companions. Like, I know you can play Zerda if you want to. I know you can play Gigantha if you want to. But they're not build-around cards. You're not you're not putting Gigantha in your deck because you want to play with the mana ability. You're putting it in there because it's a free roll card that you can get access to later. I'm not... This is a different animal. Different noodle altogether. Uh, Yorian is three and hybrid blue white hybrid blue white uh companion cost is playing an extra 20 cards in your starting deck so you have to play an 80 card deck instead of a 60 card deck and in exchange you buy a four five flying that says when this creature enters the battlefield exile any number of target uh non-land permanents you control return those permanents to the battlefield at the beginning of the next instep. Come on, y'all. That's kind of silly. Uh, this would be it. This is the kind of card that would like... It's it's totally defensible in the rare slot on this segment. It's totally defensible here where it is, taking the place of a mythic when I couldn't find an appropriate one. It would also be appropriate in the commander spotlight portion which to that point like it's just a really good value right it's it's value which coincidentally is what it provides to your deck blinking all your things giving you extra triggers and just kind of rocketing you past your opponent I don't know what all like if you haven't read the myriad of articles that are out there about Yorian decks you probably need to do that because I don't want to spend the rest of this episode talking specifically about Yorian instead I want to move on to our commander spotlight which is one that does not get a lot of love that card is emergency powers from Ravnica Allegiance coming in at a whopping 75 cents it is a mythic but it is not a very it's not a very mythic mythic. If that makes sense. Uh, it's five, a blue, and a white. Sort, uh, instant. Each player shuffles their hand and graveyard into the library and draws seven cards. And then it has the adenum mechanic from Ravnica Allegiance that says if you cast this spell during your main phase, you may put a permanent with converted mana cost seven or less from your hand onto the battlefield. So there's a little bit, there's, there's not a ton to unpack here, right? One of the things I like about this card is it's a cheap alternative to buying the big effects like this, cards like Time Reversal, Time Spiral, uh, Windfall, you know, the traditional wheels for Commander. But moreover, it's an interesting one to play in Azorius decks because Azorius decks typically are going to live and die by how quickly they can get ahead of you on mana. And this card is an interesting little payoff for hitting your uh, your mana sources early and a lot of them in a row because you can play this during your main phase early because you've hit your, your mana rocks, you know, you've hit your signets, you've hit your soul ring, 
or you're, you're, you know, if you're playing CDH, you're not interested in this card at all. But if you're playing a, a more like a focused EDA or focused commander list, like this thing is reasonable. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it's the best thing ever. There are literally better versions of the same card out there, but they don't cost 75 cents and they won't put a dream hall from your hand into play for free after you've just shuffled and drawn a new hand. This will. Which can allow you to continue to further whatever advantage you were trying to build and rock it ahead. So, speaking of trying to build whatever advantage you can and rock it ahead of your opponent, let's talk about our brew of the week, which is blue-white heroic in Pioneer. And it's a little bit of a loose term to call this a brew because it was a standard deck when original Theros was in standard, and it's currently a deck that quite a few people play in historic. But it's just not a deck that has been really explored in Pioneer. By, my, by the research that I've pulled up. A lot of the Aura's versions of Heroic that I see are either black-white or red-white, or the red-white decks are playing the instant sorcery focus so they can take advantage of Feather and Dreadhorde Arcanist. These things are not inherently bad. Let's, let's just get that out of the way. Saying that, like, these things are not bad inherently. But at its core, this deck is interesting because it is because it is very simple. It's very straightforward, it's very streamlined. You have your core cre- you, you have your core enablers, which are the reason you built the deck. You wanted to play auras in a way that would allow you to uh, pull ahead of opponents in long games you wanted to be able to mitigate the card disadvantage of playing auras you know sorry police sirens I I can't really control the other people on the road but I digress you know you're you're playing these auras you're playing what you want to do with these auras is play ones that will give you the advantage back as long as they, they get to connect the first time and to that end, we're playing cards like uh, Curious Obsession, you know, Curious Obsession being a, a one blue, just, just a blue, buys you an aura, gives your creature plus one, plus one, and whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card, but at the beginning of the end step, if you didn't attack with a creature this turn, you sacrifice Curious Obsession, it's really good. It's been the the cornerstone of several horrible decks that I've insisted on playing over the years. And I love the card dearly. You could say I have a bit of an obsession with it. Some might even call it a curious one. But, Curious Obsession's older, older sibling in Staggering Insight, which for the low, low cost of an extra white mana, tax on lifelink to Curious Obsession and removes the drawback clause. Like, that's everything I want to do for one extra mana. Make my creature harder to race and take away needing to attack with it 
in order to maintain possession of my, my card advantage. Like, yeah, that's real good. I like it a lot. Um, in addition, there are the boundless other cheap auras in the form of, what is it? Uh, Sentinel's Eyes that can, so you have Sentinel's Eyes, Cartouche's Solidarity, uh, you can go way down the rabbit hole and play cards like Arcane Flight. And last but not least, the reason you are really interested in this is because you can really punch your opponent in the mouth because we have access in Pioneer to both All That Glitters and Ethereal Armor. Ew. All the Glitters and Ethereal Armor. So with all these auras we're playing... We also get to just stack these on top of each other and bludgeon our opponent in the face with a massive creature. Sign me up. Along that same token, you've got your payoff cards. The reason you want to play all these auras in the first place. First and foremost, you have the creatures that benefit from being targeted. Um, favorite hoplite, battle-wise hoplite. I mean, what is there to say? Every time you target either one of them with a with a spell, they get a plus one plus one counter. Uh, favorite hoplite prevents the damage that would be dealt to it till end of turn. Battlewise hoplite lets you scry. So, like, both of those are reasonable. You also have your card advantage payoff in Srom Senior Edificer. Uh, one and a white, two, two, legendary creature, dwarf artificer. Whenever you cast an aura, equipment, or vehicle spell, draw a card. So that'll mitigate your card disadvantage pretty quick. I mean, just top to bottom, it's got, it's got the legs. It's got the bodies. And it's got the protection. In the form of cards like Dive Down, God's Willing, Karametra's Blessing, uh, Sheltering Light, Fight as One. A number of ways to keep your opponent from being able to kill your creature before it is large enough to just outclass everything they play. I mean, be mindful with a card like God's Willing. Uh, you can also play Alsate of Life's Bounty in the same role. And then you also have Redundancy in the form of Lurus of the Dream Den as your companion. Because Lurus will allow you to recycle most of the pieces that we're talking about here that make your deck go. It recycles all the creatures, all the auras. You don't actually want to play anything that costs more than three anyway... So this card's just gravy. It's just a free roll that just happens to fit the deck perfectly. So, I mean, if you've considered playing the, the Orzov version or you've considered playing the Feather version, you could do a lot worse than looking at the Azorius version. Even though the mana's not as exciting, uh, rumor has it we're going to be getting the rest of the pathways in, uh, in Kaldheim. So... You know, keep the eye of the keep the eye to the net for that one. But uh, moving on to our main topic this week, we're going to be talking about the history 
the 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 flavor the the flavor the strengths and weaknesses and the mechanical identity of the Azorius Guild. Azorius being blue white, introduced in Dissension, in the the late the early summer late spring of two thousand six. Uh, they are portrayed in the lore as power-hungry, greedy politicians. They are underhanded, uh, bureaucratic. Everything about them just seems to want to slow everything around them to a glacial pace so that they can do everything they can to undermine you as you try to achieve what you're trying to achieve. Uh, one of the ancillary antagonists of the original Dissension novel was the original Azorius Guild champion in Grand Arbiter Augustine IV, who ended up... I Honestly, I haven't read the novel in a while. I cannot remember what exactly happened to him. But it's just... It's, it's notably been the home to several villains over the course of the series. None more recent than Dovin Bond who was the villain on Kaladesh and one of the many villains during the Guilds of Ravnica through War of the Spark arc in the story. So, top to bottom, I mean, Azorius doesn't exactly have a good track record when it comes to being recognized as one of the good people. They're not, typically. Lavinia's, like, fine tolerable jace just kind of wishes her away every time she shows up but she's fine <laughs> uh, but let's talk about what white and blue do well together and what they do well together is interact together Better than nearly any other color combination. They're really good at answering a lot of different things. You get Blue's counter magic and card draw to find it. You get blue, uh, Blue's tempo positive effects and bouncing or tucking to the deck or uh, invalidating mechanics. You get White's. Narrow but efficient removal, you get White's unconditional but expensive removal paired with counter magic. Like, top one of the things Bloom White does best is just stop stuff from happening, which is, I guess, technically on brand. It's very on brand for the Azorians. Um, but they also are home to the largest concentration of flying creatures. And they are surprisingly good at manipulating enchantments. Uh, there's, they, they have a large concentration of enter the battlefield effects to go alongside the number of flicker and bounce effects that they have for their own things. If I had to pick weaknesses for blue-white, it would be a fast creature rush because typically what happens is a fast creature rush will force you to draw perfect and when you don't draw perfect, you just kind of get your teeth kicked in holding the wrong cards. And along with that, I mean, if you're trying to play more of a tempo-y blue-white deck, you can get outsized pretty quickly by other colors. But for the most part, like, blue-white is 
generally regarded as the color combination that's decidedly the definition of fine. From a mechanical identity standpoint, they were given three printed mechanics, and none of the three of them are particularly, well, two of the three of them are nowhere near on brand. One of them is perfect on a flavor perspective, but none of them really saw much competitive play. Uh, the first one was Forecast, where you could reveal the card from your hand and your upkeep by paying a cost and then generate an effect. Uh, the only Forecast card I can remember seeing a, 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 a notable amount of competitive play was Proclamation of Rebirth, with which you could recur every single turn Martyr of Sands or... Uh, Kami of False Hope over and over and over to keep your opponent from ever being able to kill you. You didn't win, you just made your opponent not be able to win either. Uh, moving from from the first mechanic to the second, the second mechanic was Detain in Return to Ravnica or Gatecrash, I'm not sure which one. I think it was Gatecrash. But Detain, a creature that gets detained is not allowed to attack, block, or activate its abilities. And that is perfectly Azorius. All you do is waste their time. <laughs> it's absolutely pitch perfect. Chef's Kiss could not ask for a more on-point Azorius mechanic. And then they did Ravnica Allegiance and threw that whole idea out the window again. Uh... Ravnica Allegiance gave us a Denim, which was put on instance, and when you cast them during your main phase, you got an extra effect. It was like a kicker, but the thing about kicker is you generally want to play cards with kicker that are playable without paying the kicker cost, but get better when you do, and none of the Denim cards were particularly good when you cast them as instance in standard, much less any other format. As far as common tropes you see in Azorius, I'm kind of breezing through these because honestly, there haven't been a ton of them. I mean, first and foremost, from a mechanical identity for Azorius, you see a lot of flying matters. You see a lot of like block related mechanics, like the artifact matters themes from Esper, the untap ability on the, the creatures from. Shadowmore, so on and so it's it's there's really not a lot that blue white does from a mechanical perspective but from a deck construction perspective as we move to common archetypes i i can't mention the word blue white with a hyphen in the middle without somebody immediately going man i hate blue white control uh, because everybody does except the people that play it. And even they don't love it. And it's like, it's it's good. They know it's good. Uh, Blue-white control can be built as a tap-out deck. It can be built as a draw-go deck. It can be built as a, as a deck that intends to just stall the game out. Looking to take advantage of other effects later. To win the game. Cards like... Uh, the Teferi Hero of Dominaria tucking itself back into your deck as a long-term win condition to approach the second sun to 
uh, weird instances like playing Chrono Savant in your Martyr Tron deck back in 2006. You know, look that one up. It's kind of, it's brilliantly depressing where you would stack a bunch of triggers of Chrono Savant to skip a bunch of turns because you knew your opponent couldn't kill you. And then you would make them deck themselves because they kept getting draw phases where you didn't. And then once you finally did get a draw phase, if they hadn't, if they hadn't died to decking themselves out and they hadn't died to uh, frustration, you could just, when you finally did get another turn, you'd just forecast your proclamation of rebirth, bring back Martyr of Sands, activate Martyr of Sands, reveal seven white cards in your hand, gain 21 life, and let them have at it again. It's, it's depressingly silly to even, you know, one of the most notable standard decks of all time in Callblade, which kind of combined the tap-out control deck with an early game presence. And we've had attempts to do similar things over the years. You also will get uh, Flash Matters decks, because there's a good number of Flash creatures in blue and white. And you'll get uh, Flyer, you'll get the Flyers decks, You'll get tempo-oriented piles of cards like the old blue-white flash decks from their time. You'll get flicker-based decks like uh, the Monarch decks in Pauper. Or as my friend Chad once lovingly and punnily called them, Blink-187. <laughs> There's a play on a lot of different words. But... I mean, at the end of the day, the thing about blue-white is the thing they're best at is exactly what the Azorius is best at, but they never found a way to meaningfully convey that through a mechanical identity and through anything other than how the blue-white, the, the most common blue-white deck is built, which is control. You slow the game to a halt, keep your opponent from doing anything that matters, and eventually wrestle control of the game away by utilizing your resource base advantage. That's really all there is to it. So, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I, I apologize for it being a little shorter than usual, but, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's not a very good escape this particular week because we've been talking about bureaucratic politicians who never seem to really want to help anybody. They just kind of seem to want to get in the way and slow everything around them to a glacial halt while people are trying to achieve things. And if that sounds familiar to you, I am sorry. I'm just sorry. Uh, but reach out. Questions, comments, concerns. I'm on Twitter at HomerPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. Uh, on YouTube, I am Homeward. I'm uh, Homeward Path Gaming. On oh, what am I trying to say? Uh, Arena, you can add me on Arena. I'm Homeward Path. Uh, pound eight six seven zero zero. And listen, I know this. Uh, this particular U.S. election has been miserable to wait through and it is definitely something I would like to see addressed in the future to make it less stressful but just know 
we're nearing the end of it, or we're, we're at least closer to the end of it now than we were when it began. We will get through this together and we will come out the other side of it stronger. So be safe, be strong. We'll catch you next week. We're going to be talking about the Demir. So be sure to come back for that. We'll catch you later.